traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly show on business and finance. I'm Helen Joyce, The Economist's finance editor. Coming up... President Trump's senior trade advisor, Peter Navarro, on what he believes is at stake in the trade war. President Trump is not going to sit there and wait for the rest of the world to come along when we're the biggest piggy bank for China in the world. And The Economist's Bartleby columnist on his pet hate, video conferencing. You're gazing at the screen in a fixed fashion and you kind of have the appearance of a hostage in a kidnapping or a terrorist campaign. First, dramatic takeovers, billions of dollars, clever coding and glamorous movie stars. It might sound like the plot of a binge-worthy TV show. Instead, it's the battle playing out between the giant companies who want to dominate the market of streaming services. On the 12th of November, Disney launched Disney+. Plus. The platform will show content from all of Disney's acquisitions, including Pixar, Marvel and 21st Century Fox. And it's a bold foray into the world of streaming that was kickstarted by Netflix. So who'll come out on top in the streaming revolution? Tamsin Booth is The Economist's Britain business editor. Hello, Tamsin. Hello, Helen. Tamsin, why does Disney now feel ready to move to a subscription-based streaming service? Well, it really is about time that Disney launched Disney+, and it's just not a moment too soon. After all, Netflix started streaming in 2007 and has had massive success. As you know, it's got 158 million paying subscribers. Disney, though, it's a deeply perfectionist company, never goes through the motions. It wanted to get it just right. So over the past five or so years, it's bought a whole collection of content. It bought Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, 21st Century Fox. So it now has a lot of what is worth having in television and film. So it's in an incredibly strong position to take on Netflix and also contend with new entrants like Apple TV+, HBO Max and, and all the new services that are launching. There's a serious amount of money to be made in the licensing of those TV shows. What kind of figures are we talking about and why do more companies want to get involved? That's right. We're in the middle of what I would call the great Hollywood binge. So lots of popular old content like Friends, The Office, Seinfeld is changing hands for hundreds of millions of dollars. In October, for instance, HBO Max, owned by AT&T, the phone company, paid $500 million for the US rights to South Park from Viacom, which created the content. And that's the second biggest subscription video on demand deal of all time. And of course, the reason that these prices are being driven up so high is that there's basically just a limited amount of truly great must-have content out there. And the money is also flowing to the content creators in Hollywood. And it's an absolute bonanza for people like Shonda Rhimes, for instance, the writer of Grey's Anatomy, the medical drama. She's being paid $150 million over five years. And that's really kind of, you know, hedge fund or private equity type money we're talking about. 
So how do you make this streaming model work? How does a firm do it? Well, it's quite simple. I mean, there's three elements, really. I mean, the first, obviously, is just the sheer number of subscribers. You've got to get tens of millions, preferably over 100 million. Netflix has managed to get 158 million. But that's hard, of course, because the novelty value of sort of on-demand binging has faded somewhat. And we're really at a kind of peak attention economy where people don't have any time left in their day to give to something new. You've got to kind of claw away their attention from something else. And another vital part of strategy is kind of giving consumers consistency of excellent content. Because if you just got a few kind of hits here and there, you get lots of churn. So, you know, at the end of the season finale of Game of Thrones, for instance, lots of people left. Um, maybe they won't come back. So consistency of content. And what people are really hoping in terms of the economics is that once this sort of looming shakeout comes where some services just won't be able to survive, at that point, the hope is that you'll be able to put prices up. And the other thing is that, of course, down the line, companies will hope that they can get advertising revenue into some of these services. Most of them are subscription only at the moment, but advertising should play a greater role in the future. So Netflix was obviously one of the leading forces behind this pivot to streaming services. Is it going to survive all this competition or is it going to be taken out? Yes, that's right. So Disney Plus, HBO Max in particular are kind of billed as so-called Netflix killers. And these firms, you know, they're being pretty aggressive against Netflix, which is sort of, it straddles both worlds. It's kind of an outsider because it's a tech company primarily, but it's also gained a lot of respect and is regarded as a legitimate movie studio just because they have funneled so much money to content creators and have had a lot of critical acclaim. So it's fascinating to see the more legacy companies go up against it. And one of their tactics is particularly aggressive, which is pulling off content. So some of the most viewed content on Netflix is stuff like Friends and The Office. And they're losing it to these other companies now. But of course, they are hitting back by buying up old episodes of Seinfeld. So it really is a battle and a confrontation. And Netflix's shares are down by a fifth just because there's so much focus on whether it's going to get taken out. But I think the the consensus view is that Netflix is just is so entrenched with consumers who just really value it. I mean, one reason is just that it has content that appeals to everyone, to the so-called four quadrant of all kind of demographic ages, whereas Disney Plus perhaps has a slightly more family appeal. So it's got so many subscribers, it's got an awful lot of growth coming from overseas now. It appeals to everyone. I think it will definitely survive. Maybe it might have to adjust its strategy somewhat. And do you see the tech firms, the firms that have gone into absolutely everything like Amazon and Apple, do you see them going big into this and taking a large slice of the pie? Well, Amazon and Apple are both, you know, they're spending several billion dollars a year each, not as much as a Netflix or a Disney. But, you know, if you talk to people in Hollywood, there's no doubt that there's an expectation that those sums are only going to go up for Amazon and Apple. After all, it's really kind of small change for them, considering the size of their revenues and market caps. And what's really interesting is that, you know, they're using media as part of a broader business model. So Jeff Bezos famously said, when we win a Golden Globe, it helps us sell more shoes. It's really about keeping people on Amazon Prime and getting the volumes up. And for Apple, it's about selling iPhones and boosting their fast-growing services division. So Apple TV Plus costs $5 a month if you don't have much to do with Apple, but you get it free if you buy a new gadget. 
So, you know, there's quite a debate going on on whether this is good for content and television in the long run, because, of course, you know, a lot of a lot of people at the studios and the legacy companies think it's absolutely dreadful that art is being used to sell more shoes or loo roll, whatever it is. But on the other hand, you know, no one is quarrelling with the money that is just gushing in from all of these companies. And so other people say, well, who cares? You know, if they give the money, we can make the great content, we can make the art. Tamsin, thank you. Thank you. And you can read Tamsin's blockbuster briefing on this in the upcoming edition of The Economist. To subscribe, go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, negotiators in America and China are busy hashing out a so-called phase one deal, a mini truce in the trade war between the two countries. Peter Navarro is President Trump's chief advisor in these negotiations. At the World Trade Symposium on November 6th, he spoke to our trade and globalisation editor, Samaya Keynes, about how he views what's at stake in this contest. Samaya joins me on the line from Washington, D.C. Hello, Samaya. Hello. Before we hear from Peter Navarro, tell us who he is and how instrumental he's been in shaping American strategy in the trade war. Peter Navarro is is one of the important actors in the Trump administration, Robert Lighthizer, the United States trade representative, being the other one. He's an economist. He has he has a PhD from Harvard University. Uh, he's very close to the president, and he's he's probably one of the most critical of the current system, and and also the one who seems happiest about essentially blowing it up. He's known as a China basher. He's he's very gung-ho about tariffs. And obviously, when he spoke, he was very hawkish on China and very positive about the Trump administration's policies. Candidate Trump has likewise promised to crack down on China's seven deadly structural sins, cyber intrusions into our business networks, forced technology transfer, intellectual property theft, massive subsidies, state-owned enterprises, currency manipulation, and the worst of all, killing Americans with made-in-China fentanyl. It's 50,000 Americans a year. That's what we're dealing with. By standing up to China, the history books will surely note this as one of his greatest achievements. President Trump has forever changed the world's understanding of China's authoritarianism and mercantilism. And by the way, uh, in a de facto obituary of the failed policy of economic engagement, I'd like to read you a little squib from The Economist magazine. Western leaders hoped that economic integration would encourage China to evolve into a market economy and that as they grew wealthier, its people would come to yearn for democratic freedoms, rights, and the rule of law. It was a worthy vision that The Economist newspaper shared. Today, that illusion is shattered. That's The Economist. We agree. My only question is, what took you folks so long? So he's arguing that the trade war is an inevitable consequence of two incompatible economic and political systems. What did you make of what he had to say? Well, he he actually quoted a lot from The Economist to to support what he was saying. I do like the audio as well. Oh, great. Yes. I'll, His speech I'll, I'll, did include quite a few points I, I disagreed with. For example, he said that the tax cuts had led to an investment boom. I, I just don't think that's borne out in the data. 
but on China, I was I was listening and essentially thinking that this isn't enough. It it isn't enough at this stage just to identify problems that you you have with China's system. Uh, you know, the the question people have with the Trump administration's strategy is, it's not over whether they've identified real problems, but it's over whether their tactics or, you know, the tariffs, whether they're actually going to be any kind of solution for them. And so I asked him where he sees all of this going. You know, what what was his vision for the US-China relationship in five years' time? What's the end game? The call what's going on between us, a trade war, is really a, a, a gross misnomer, right? A trade war is when you're trying to get some country to lower their tariffs and you agree to lower yours. This is not that. This is about the seven scenes which I talked about. So think about this. The United States is trying to be in a relationship with a country which, as we speak, is hacking our computers from Shanghai, trying to steal your business secrets. Yeah, so I guess um, on those, but on those structural things, on state and enterprises, on, on subsidies, I think it would be naive to think that they would be going away in five years. We're trying to get them to stop their structural stuff. And if we get them to do that, then that will help Europe, it'll help everybody else. Okay, but in the next five years, in the next five years, China's not about to remove all subsidies or remove all state-owned enterprises from its economic system. So perhaps on things like technology transfer, they could come up with something. But in terms of the, the kind of very deep stuff, they're not going to change that in a very fundamental way. So given that, what does that so, mean for so you know, five years' time? Pick, pick a number. Like, here's the loaf. How much of the loaf do you think we should settle for? At this point, he was using his hands to describe a, a loaf of bread and basically asking how big a slice the U.S. should demand from the Chinese. You tell me. Well, you're the one with the power. <laughs> I, I have no power. I, I, the president's the one that has the power. I'm just, I just, I'm okay. just a witness to history here. But my point is simply that you're talking about a country, an authoritarian country with a state capitalist model, whose behavior, if they were any other than China, you would not put up with at all. Right? The only thing that allows them to entertain these kind of notions of a half deal is their scale and size, right? So why isn't The Economist like railing every week about China this? So we cover China a fair amount. I uh, know you do, but you rail more against our tariffs than you do against China's structural problem. Anyway. So one of the criticisms of uh, the Trump administration's approach to China is not necessarily with some of the problems that Trump has identified. It's with the tactics employed or the strategy or lack thereof. Um, and one of lack the, one of the mm, criticisms... Boy, you'll, you'll survive, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, one of the criticisms <laughs> that has been levied against the Trump administration yeah. is, you know, yes, there are these problems with China. There are problems that... Uh, yeah, you know, we led them into the, the World Trade Organization. Right, so people in the, the EU, Japan, there are, there, are other, there are other folks who agree with America. So why go it alone? Why not, you know, form this coalition? So I love that question, okay? So, so let me ask you this. Let's talk about Germany. Half of their economy depends on exports, right? We agree on that, right? It's very trade and, and And the problem is that that export dependency, all roads lead to where? Beijing, right? So do you think that that Germany has has the ability to stand up to China and and come into an alliance with the United States on this? We would love 
an alliance. And in fact, there was a tripartite statement that we made with, with Europe and Japan, the U.S. On, on a lot of this stuff, but President Trump is not going to sit there and wait for the rest of the world to come along when we're the biggest piggy bank for China in the world. How much truth is there in that? To what extent can American trade policy be seen as the result of other actors not engaging with China on these structural issues that he identified? So I'm not sure I totally buy his argument here. There have been some moves to talk to the EU and and Japan, but I have not gotten any sense from anyone involved that that those discussions are a priority. Uh, The bilateral discussion seems to be going on first and and the trilateral ones are an almost an afterthought or or even that the cynics say that they're just something to point to when people make this criticism rather than being a central plank of the strategy. And Samaya, if you're a betting woman, what's the odds that anything is going to move in that direction? I think it depends what you talk about. So there's this phase one deal that is on the table that the Trump administration and the Chinese are trying to get agreed, perhaps in the next month. Uh, it's very unlikely that any kind of you know deep systemic issue is going to be solved as part of that, just because they're they're trying to get it done so quickly. And then as for the negotiations after that, if you're thinking about their concerns with China's state-owned enterprises or their industrial subsidies, that kind of thinking is is you know, very ingrained into the, the current Chinese leadership. And so no tariff threat, I think, is going to get that to change. Samaya Keynes, thank you very much. Thank you, Helen. And finally, more than ever, this... becoming a regular feature of the working day. That's because more workplaces are relying on video conferencing to get their work done. But is it having a positive effect on the way we work? Philip Coggan has written about this for The Economist's Bartleby column. I was going to video conference him to talk about it, but we're actually office mates, so I thought I'd go and find him instead. Hello, Philip. Hello, Helen. Why is there a growing trend then in video conferencing? Two reasons, I think. One is a positive reason that it's greener that sending people around the world to fly to appear at meetings is a lot of carbon emissions and driving people around the country is a lot of carbon emissions too. But the second reason I think is just fashion, that people seem to think that a phone call isn't enough and you need to see their face as well. And that's the bit that I find rather worrying and unnecessary. So it's very hard to call in in your pyjamas if you're working from home. Exactly. You know, if you're working at home, you don't necessarily want people to see the surroundings that you're working in or how you're dressed. It's adding an extra layer of effort. But also, I think, fundamentally, you don't always want to be seen. And I think one of the problems with video calls is that you're gazing at the screen in a fixed fashion and you kind of have the appearance of a hostage in a, a kidnapping or a terrorist campaign. <laughs> and also, if there's more than one of you and you have to keep looking then you're sort of staring and it makes me enormously fidgety that I'm on screen. I'm not always talking, but I have to look as if it seems rude. They're even developing some apps that will follow you around the room. So there's no escape from this thing. And history is not kind to sort of all seeing video screens. It crops up in George Orwell's 1984. 
Jeremy Bentham suggested the panopticon, but that was to monitor prisoners. When we're introducing technology that has those connotations, I think we should be worried. And another thing is they often put the screen up and it's really huge. So you've got your colleague's face at enormous size for like an hour during a meeting. Exactly. They loom over the room. Now, I can see that having a video screen is useful if you have to show everybody charts and they're not there. But is your face really necessary? Do you have to be on screen? It's a bit like those old Star Trek episodes where the Klingon captain would appear on screen and everybody on the bridge would react. I don't really want to be the Klingon captain in this scenario. I'd rather be on the phone call. I can listen. I don't want to be seen. And indeed, if I'm listening and not seen, I can do things like check my emails during the boring bits. And sometimes in phone calls, there are boring bits. And of course, those of us who don't have faces for radio aren't in the majority, maybe. Well, you should be on screen all the time, Helen, but I'm more than happy to be in the background. I'm happy to be on the podcast, but quite rightly, don't appear on Economist Films. So what about the technology? Is the technology getting any better? There's an app that's being produced which will change your face so that your eyes appear to be focusing on the person you're talking to uh, so that you can wander your attention a bit. But I think this doesn't go far enough. So what we really need is an app that shows your face and also interjects, mm-hmm, and, oh, yes, you're right, every few seconds so that, you know, you and I can get on with our work and nominally appear in these phone calls without actually doing so. This reminds me very strongly of Father Ted. I don't know if you remember the bit where they're trying to train Father Jack uh, to respond and they just teach him three answers, yes, no, and that would be an ecumenical matter. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Uh, I think we've all done it with relatives who go on for too long. We, we have a few stock phrases we throw in just to show that we're still listening. So if we've got companies that have offices split in many locations, do you really think that maybe we can just do it all with phone calls? Or are there times that really a video conference isn't a bad idea for checking in? There are times that a video conference is useful, especially, as you say, if you're widespread locations. But it's not necessarily on all calls. I think the thing to consider is, is your face really necessary? Mine isn't. I'm happy that the listeners haven't had to put up with it in this Money Talks. (laughs) Philip Coggan, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Helen Joyce, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.